Well, I'm Pastor Steve. It is good to be back with you. I've been uh, vacationing for a couple of weeks. While I was gone, I decided to grow a beard. It was looking, it was coming along. And I got home and uh, my oldest granddaughter, who is two, announced, I don't like Grandpa's beard. I want Grandpa to wash it off. And she refused to look at me. She buried her head in her mother's shoulder and she would not turn around and she would not look at grandpa. Guess what happened to grandpa's beard? The power of a child. I think they call that child-centered grandparenting. It's good to be back with you. We are in a study in the book of Joel. And I encourage you to turn with me in your Old Testaments to the book of Joel It's classified by Bible scholars as one of the minor prophets. And that doesn't mean that it it contains minor truth, but simply that it's short. It's only three chapters long, and that's why they refer to it as a minor prophet. Here in Joel 2, we find God disciplining his people Israel because Israel has grown far from him. They have started to do their own thing, ignoring the Lord and His will. And so God gets their attention. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we see a God-sized issue. Those are issues that God brings into the lives of His people that quickly help His people say that I don't have enough intellect, I don't have enough strength to fix this on my own. I need the Lord. And God told the people of Israel through the prophet Joel that this God-sized issue, this wave upon wave upon wave of destructive locusts who totally annihilated the land and their crops was actually just a precursor to him really getting their attention in what Joel labels the day of the Lord. And in chapter 1, verse 15... We read this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we say, the prophet Joel, tell Israel that there will be an invading army. We know from chapter 2, verse 20, that it's an army from the north that will come in and be used as God's instrument of discipline in their lives. Well, how should God's people respond when God disciplines them? And that's what we find in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. God, through the prophet Joel, told the people, this is what you should do. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves and return to me with All your heart. A whole-hearted return. A renewed commitment to holiness, to recognizing that, that I belong to God and God alone, that we belong to God and God alone, that we are to yield ourselves and solely serve Him. And evidently, from the passage that we're going to see today, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, the people of Israel respond. 
they see that they have wandered far from God. And in wholeness of heart, they come back to him. And we're going to see God's heart of compassion for his people. Now, why is this important to be looking at ancient texts about the people of Israel when we live here in the 21st century? Because God doesn't change. And we find ourselves in the same place as Israel. We find ourselves sinning against God just like Israel did. We find ourselves wandering far away from God just like Israel did. We find ourselves with cold hearts just like Israel had. And yet, God's character is the same. He doesn't change. And we're going to see that when God's people come back to him with genuine repentance. He responds with a heart of compassion. I'm going to read the verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Joel chapter 2, starting the read in verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his people and will have pity on them. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it's done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, for the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad of the Lord your God, for he has given you the earthly rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain, the early and the later rain is before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make to you for the, make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the nine locusts, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. There is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. We're going to see through the prophet Joel this morning that when God's people genuinely come to him with repentance, with repentant hearts, he always responds with compassion. About a week and a half ago, my wife Barbara and I were in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and we visited a gorgeous estate called Chatham Manor. Chatham Manor is famous because three presidents have visited there, Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. And its real claim to fame was the fact that it became a temporary Union hospital during the Battle of Fredericksburg. 
It looks down over the city, and you can see where the Union troops trying to build a temporary bridge over to Fredericksburg where they, so they could get the troops across. During the Battle of Fredericksburg, where there was great loss of Union troops' lives, we know that Walt Whitman, the poet, was in Chatham House, comforting soldiers, writing letters to home. And also, in that house, during that couple-day battle, was Clara Barton. Clara Barton is the founder of the American Red Cross. And she had such a passion for the wounded during the Civil War that she got special, she received special permission to go onto the front lines and just do whatever she could do to help the wounded. Helping with bandages, helping whatever, whatever way she could. She was at Antietam and she was at Fredericksburg. After the war was over, the War Department received Thousands of letters of inquiry from dads and moms and, and wives and children wondering, where is my loved one? There was such great loss of life. Even at Fredericksburg, many soldiers put in the mass graves. People did not know the whereabouts of those whom they loved. Clara Barton became aware of this and approached President Lincoln and asked personally if she could begin working through these unanswered letters that had been sent to the War Department. And she founded the Office of Missing Soldiers. And literally tens of thousands of families eventually were able to receive word what happened to their loved one. Why would one woman be so concerned about those deceased soldiers? Why would she commit so much of her life to hurting people? Well, she had a heart of compassion. Now, if a sinful human being can have that level of compassion... How much more can a loving God who knows no sin have compassion for his people? And it's that compassion that we want to see today in Joel chapter 2 because we need to be reminded that God is the same today as he was in Joel 2. That he is a God of compassion, of grace, of mercy, of long-suffering, suffering, of loving kindness toward his people. We need to have confidence in that because just as Israel often followed this cycle of everything going good, I get a little bit more self-confident, everything's going better, And I just start thinking it's all because of me. And I slowly, sometimes without even thinking, become more independent from God and more independent from God and more independent from God until all of a sudden I realize, because he has to bring discipline into my life, that I'm not depending on him at all. And I'm sinning against him. 
And he has to bring me back to a consciousness of my own sinfulness and my utter dependence on him. And I need to have the same confidence that he gives to Israel. That when I come to him, I will be coming to a God who has a heart of compassion. When his people come to him in genuine repentance. That's what we find here in Joel 2. We're going to begin by just looking at one verse, verse 18. And in verse 18, we see that the Lord responds to genuine repentance with compassion. Notice, if you have a New American Standard Bible, or a New Living Translation, or a King James Bible, verse 18 sounds like it's future. It says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Remember, God has just said, this northern army's coming. You've been sinning against me. Here's how you should respond. You should respond by rending your heart, not your garments. And maybe in verse 14, the Joel's not going to presume on God, but he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Maybe the Lord will route this army another way if we come to him in genuine repentance. And verse 18 says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land. Now, if you have an English standard version or a New English translation, or an NIV, New International Version, they translate this verse with a past idea. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his for his land and had pity on his people. Now, why do some of the translations have a future idea and some of the translations a past? Well, in the Hebrew language, the verbs are not as precise as they are in the Greek language. Remember, the New Testament is primarily written in Greek. The Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, you must depend on the context sometimes to figure out if you're looking at a verb that is past tense or future tense. Most likely, the NIV's translation that in the ESV, that the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people probably is best here in this context that Israel did listen to the Lord's charge to them and came to him with genuine repentance and he responded with compassion. But either way, whether it's a a promise that God will respond this way or a statement that God did respond this way, the truth is the same, that the Lord responds to genuine Repentance with compassion. It's interesting when looking at verse 18 that the first half of the verse says that the Lord will be zealous or jealous for his land. For for that literal ground upon which Israel has been planted. And it says that he will be, he'll fight for it. He will support it. Remember, right now the land has laid in waste. 
wave after wave after wave of these locusts have come in and stripped everything bare. There's nothing for the cattle to eat. There's nothing for the people to eat. They can't even bring a drink offering, a grain offering to the temple to worship the Lord because there's nothing to bring. It's desolate. And yet, verse 18 says, because the people come in genuine repentance that the Lord is going to provide care for his land. He's going to support it. And for the people, compassion, pity. He will have compassion on his people. I want to take a moment this morning and remind ourselves of why the land of Israel is so important. The land of Israel, this little itty bitty speck of land on a, on a world map, this little speck of land seems like it's always in the news. It, it seems like it's the focus of the world, this little itty speck of land. Why? Because God has made it part of His plan for the earth. It is important to God. And we should not lose track of the fact that this land is central in God's plan. It has been in the past, it is now, and it's going to be in the future. And in, to highlight that, I'm going to read just in quick succession several passages of Scripture that talk about the importance of that land of promise. And then we'll make a couple of concluding remarks. I'll be reading it in so quickly. You may not be able to turn, but you can jot down these passages and look at them up later if you so desire. We're going to begin in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Over to chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And by the way, Israel still to this day has never totally possessed the land in the scope that is laid out for here in Genesis 15:18. One day they will. You see, it's important for us to understand that these promises of God to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament are not negated or, or uh, overtaken uh, by the church. There's not some spiritual fulfillment to these promises in the church. God will be faithful to his people, Israel. And we see the land continuing throughout the entire Bible to be important. Next we turn over to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 5. And we're going to spend a little more time in this chapter uh, in a few moments because Deuteronomy 30 is so important to Joel 2. And Deuteronomy 35, remember the people of Israel, God says, when you disobey me, you're going to go through all of this discipline, but I will bring you back. And in verse 5 it says, the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, 
And you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Then we come to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 39. Probably one of the most famous passages in the book of Ezekiel is the passage of this vision of these dry bones out in a valley and and the Spirit of God breathing new life into them, talking about new life coming to the people of Israel. And in chapter 39, near that passage, it's talking about the end times. And in chapter 39 of the book of Israel, starting to read in verse 28, we read this. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gather them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer. For I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And just as Ezekiel the prophet in the Old Testament talks about the centrality of the importance of the land of promise in the Old Testament, when we come to the book of Revelation, we see, for example, in chapters 20 through 22, the land still being important. We find that Jesus Christ, after the seven-year period of tribulation, returns to earth and sets up a kingdom for a thousand years in the land. And he will reign over that land until right at the end of the thousand year period of time, Satan is released. He tries to lead one last rebellion of God toward God. He is forever cast into the lake of fire. And then the new Jerusalem comes out from heaven. And what does it do? It comes down and rests on the land. You see, that land of promise is so critical. Why do we think that we can't turn on the news today without hearing some comment, some story about this little tiny speck of land? It's because it's important to God. Why is it that the Muslim world hates Israel? It's because Israel is part of God's plan. And those who are adamantly hating Israel are ultimately reacting against what God is doing. And we find that this is so critical for us to see today because it reminds us that when God says he'll do something, he's going to do it. And here we find God caring for the land of promise even clear back in Joel chapter 2, when it says the Lord will be zealous, he'll support his land. He's going to make it fruitful again. And then he says, and will have pity or has compassion on his people. You see, God always responds to his people with a heart of compassion when they come to him with genuine repentance. We saw back just a few verses in chapter 2, verse 13, when the prophet told Israel, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious 
and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. And remember, we said that that most likely goes clear back to the same type of description of God in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when Moses went up onto the Mount Sinai to receive the law, and the people of Israel said, oh, I don't think he's coming back, he's taking too long, we better get a new God. And so they, Moses comes back down, and there's this calf made out of molten gold, and the people say, well, we just took off our, our jewelry, we threw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. And God said to Moses, "I'm step back, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes for his people. And what does the Lord do? He tells Moses that he will relent from wiping out the people. Why? Because he is a God of grace. In 34, 6, and 7 compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You see, God doesn't change. It's important for us to remember that He always has a heart of compassion when His people come to Him with genuine repentance. Why is that so important? Because you and I find ourselves in the same place as Israel. We start becoming dependent on ourselves and not Him. We start thinking that we are in control. We start pray, we stop praying and asking Him for guidance. We stop asking for Him to control us and fill us. We think that we are making our lives run. And in the process, we not only are sinning because we are living independently from him, but we start thinking and acting out sinful things. And is same for Israel. He has to bring discipline into our lives. And he gets our attention and we finally realize, oh, I've been sinning against God. I've just, I've been living my life in my own strength. And we know we need to confess our sin and come back to him. And right when we come to that knowledge, sometimes we stop. And we start saying things like, can I? I've, I've followed this path of independence before. Can I, will he accept me? Can I really confess my sin? Will he really accept me? I went to Abraham Lincoln High School in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Real pit of a school. Graduated in 1979. I cannot tell you the name of our principal, but I can tell you the name of our vice principal, Don Moxley. And I don't know if it's this way in schools today, but then the vice principal was the disciplinarian. The vice principal was the guy who'd walk the halls and throw guys against the locker when they got in fights. And he was the one that sent people... Uh, away from school and said, you're out of here, you're suspended, Mr. Moxley. Never had to go to Mr. Moxley's office, but I still feared him. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we view God like a vice principal. And we're not quite sure where we stand. If we got called to the principal's office, like, hey man, maybe I got a scholarship. Get called to the vice principal's office, oh man, 
what's going to happen. And it's important for us to read these ancient passages, passages like Joel 2, to remember the attributes of God, that he is a God of compassion. That when his people confess their sin and come back to him, he always welcomes his people. He always has a heart of compassion. Always. There's never a time when he does not want us to enter his presence. There's never a time when he's going to say, oh, you've sinned too much, and eh, you can't come to me anymore. All he looks for is a genuine heart. Well, as the chapter unfolds in verses 19 through 27, we literally see examples of what the Lord means when he says, I'm going to care for or support or be zealous for the land and have compassion on my people. And these verses really go back to the truths we find in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. Remember in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, the people of Israel about to enter the land of promise. And before they go in, Moses takes half the people and puts them on one mountain and half the people and puts them on another mountain and gives them a visual a display of what's going to happen when they enter the land. If you obey the Lord when you go into the land, this is what's going to happen to you when he turns to the people on this mountain and says, you're going to have great crops. You're going to have peace in the land. You'll flourish. But if you disobey, then he turns to these people on this mountain and says, you're going to have terrible crops. A foreign invader will come in and take you captive. And then in Deuteronomy 30, he talks about what happens when his people have suffered the discipline of the Lord and come back to him with a genuine heart. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth. From there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict the these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers, if you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And with that promise, Joel the prophet starts listing about 
how God responds to his people Israel here in Joel 2 when they come back to him with genuine repentance. Notice the land flourishes. Verse 19, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. Verse 22, Don't fear beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned grain for the trees born as fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. Verse 23, He's given you the earthly rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the rain, the early and later rains before. Verse 24, The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will over flow with the new wine and oil. Verse 25, then I'll make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. And then he says, I will be with you. In verse 27, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other And we know from passages like Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, Numbers chapter 14 verse 14, that God dwelled amongst his people when they were responding to him with obedience. And what a privileged position are we in as New Testament Christians because he not only dwells in the midst of the church, he lives inside of every Christian By means of the Spirit of God, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. We have God dwelling in us, each one of us. And justice is true of Israel here, that if they'd only walk in obedience, God will bless them. When we walk depending on the Spirit of God, confessing our sin, not letting it go unconfessed, He's able to replicate Christ's life through us, and we experience His blessing through us. Here, the Lord tells Israel in verse 19, I'll never again make you approach among the nations. Verse 26, then my people will never be put to shame. Verse 27, my people will never be put to shame. And Bible scholars have struggled a little bit with that phrase because after Joel 2, Israel still suffers. But if you remember back to Deuteronomy 30, the Lord said, you're going to experience blessing as long as you obey me. If you stop obeying me, you're going to be disciplined again. But one day... When Israel has a new heart, they will walk in complete obedience to the Lord. And Jesus, the Messiah, will reign over them on earth in his kingdom. You see, it's important for us to see this tie between Deuteronomy 30 and Joel chapter 2. Because Deuteronomy 30 is the promise Joel chapter 2 is the fulfillment, at least a partial fulfillment of that passage. We see the principle laid out. And it reminds us from verses 19 through 27 that the Lord always provides according to what he's promised. While on vacation the last few weeks, couple weeks, my wife Barbara and I spent time in one of our favorite places in the United States, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And we were on the most remote part of the Outer Banks, an island called Ocracoke Island. 13 miles of the island is National Park. Nothing can be built on it. It's just the Atlantic Ocean. And every day, I would get up about 6 o'clock, go sit out on this porch with us, with the, the 
squeaky screen door and an old rocker, and I'd re- I was reading the book of Isaiah. And then we had breakfast, and then we went and drank coffee some more. And then about 10 o'clock, we'd go to the ocean, and my wife would set up with her beach chair and her umbrella and her once in a while I'd go jump in the ocean, and I would walk. Every day, I walked for five miles. Took my shoes, took my sandals off. I'm just out walking in the ocean. Uh, when my wife told me that there are occasional shark attacks there, I didn't walk quite as far out. And I'm walking in the ocean. I'm picking up shells from my little granddaughter, who someday I will forgive for making me shave. And I'm, I'm, I'm every day I'm walking. And one of the days I'm out walking in the sand, I start thinking about that kid's song about the wise man and the foolish man. Love that song. Remember, the wise man built his house on a rock. And the rains would come down and the floods would come up and the house on the rock stood firm, right? And I was walking along that sand and my feet would dig into that sand and I'd push once in a while, push the sand around, get in a shell or something. And I thought about the foolish man. What happened to the foolish man? The foolish man built his house on the sand. And the rain came down and the flood came up. And one of my favorite lines of all time from all music, and the house on the sand went splat. I love that part. And you know, right now, we need to be reminded that there's one firm rock upon which we need to anchor our lives. And it's not the sand. You know what the sand is today for us? The sand is putting our confidence in the political process. If your confidence is in the political process today, I have a couple of words for you. Good luck with that. Or the sand for us is putting our confidence in our retirement funds or our finances. Good luck with that too. We can see there can be a hiccup in England and we can use, lose tens of thousands of dollars the same day. Good luck with putting your confidence in money. There's one place when we start feeling like we're going to get creamed. There's one place where we can come. The only place where we have a solid foundation upon which we can rest. And that's in God himself. And when he makes a promise... Just like he did to Israel in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, he always does what he says. Always. And when we find that we've walked away from him, and he's had to discipline us and get our attention, and I realize, man, I need to confess. I need to come back. We don't hesitate. We don't need to hesitate. Why? Because he always has compassion for his people when they genuinely come back. You see, it's not about us. I, we, you, know, you guys know what I mean. We spend time, oh, am I sorry enough? Or have I prayed enough about this? It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about His attributes. And He is the one who has a compassionate heart that through the person of Jesus Christ, I can claim forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for me on that cross and risen from the dead. And I can come back to him because justice is true and Joel 2 is true today. He always has a heart of compassion for his people when they come to him with genuine repentance. You may be here today and you don't know if you're right with God or not. 
I would encourage you when the service is done, one of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders, will be back in the prayer room. They can give you some material that you can look up verses in your own Bible and see how you can know for sure that you're right with God. Or maybe you're here and you're just hurting today. I'd encourage you to go back to the prayer room, spend some time praying this morning before you leave. Father, we thank you that you are a God who always responds to genuine repentance with compassion and provision. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.